Hi, you're listening to It Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is how we adapt. That's the focus of It Happened to Me, which wants to help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, co-hosts Kathy Gildenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me, I'm not alone, and neither are you. We are honored to have Dr. Andrew Carey on It Happened to Me today. I must disclose, Dr. Carey is my doctor and my hero. He is the doctor who diagnosed my rare disease, Wolfram syndrome. Dr. Carey is a neuro-ophthalmologist and an assistant professor of ophthalmology in the Division of Neuro-Ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute. Dr. Carey specializes in neuro-ophthalmic disorders, as well as diseases of the retina, including age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, toxic retinopathies, and inherited disorders of the retina. So many specialties in your repertoire, Dr. Perry. But today, we will focus on neuro-ophthalmology, optic neuropathies, and rare disease. Let's start at the beginning. What is neuro-ophthalmology? And how do you know when you need to, pardon the pun, see one? Well, hi, Kathy and Beth. Thank you so much for inviting me on here. It's such a pleasure to talk with you guys today. Neuro-ophthalmology is the subspecialty of ophthalmology and neurology, kind of the intersection of the two that deals with disorders involving the connection between the brain and the eyes. Most people probably don't know this, but 40% of your brain is actually dedicated to vision, whether Mm. it's the interpretation of vision Uh, capturing the light or helping to control eye movements. And so that's a lot of neurologic real estate. And uh, neurologic conditions can cause uh, loss of your side vision, decreased central vision, problems interpreting the world that's around you, even if your eyes can capture all all of that, as well as causing double vision, where you're seeing two of things, uh, drooping of an eyelid, or... um, or shaky vision, where your eyes aren't stable and the whole world looks like it's moving or spinning, even though you're perfectly still. Mm. And most of the time, patients are referred to me. They're referred by a a doctor who has some kind of concern uh, about their medical health and that it may either affect their vision or or their neurologic function related to vision. And uh, probably most of my referrals come from other eye doctors, either optometrists or neuro or optometrist or ophthalmologist who saw the patient who had some kind of vision complaint and identifies that it's not really a problem with the eyeball itself, and then we'll refer it to the neuro ophthalmologist. They may come from a neurosurgeon who is seeing a patient for some type of brain tumor that is near or involving one of the vision centers or the vision pathways in the brain. Sometimes we get referrals from endocrinologists because the patients have a disorder with hyperactive thyroid and that can impact the eyes and vision. 
sometimes we get referrals from endocrinologists because they're found to have a growth in the pituitary tumor that regulates all their hormones um, and metabolism. And that is very near to the vision nerves. And that's probably most of the time how patients will end up coming to see me. Sometimes they'll be referred from a neurologist after a stroke or if they have multiple sclerosis. Yeah. would, would huh. be the, the other common times. And occasionally there'll be a patient who is um, doesn't feel satisfied with the care evaluations they've had before, and they'll read about their symptoms online, either mm -hmm. from an education site or a patient support, you know, group support site. And they'll say, I had symptoms like that, and I went to go see this kind of doctor, and maybe you should think about doing that. And so sometimes it's a patient who advocates for themselves. Wow, that's fascinating. But you see very serious, these are very serious illnesses. People Potentially. Very I, some, sometimes they're, they're benign things like migraine, um, which happens in one in seven people in the world, and one in yeah. three people with migraines will at some point have some kind of vision symptom. I, Classically, it's seeing flashing lights or funny colors like a kaleidoscope, and sometimes it's a blackout in vision. And well, most of the time that's not serious, but it could be something serious. And so you want to see uh, somebody who is familiar with it to kind of distinguish what's going on. Um, some causes of double vision are self-resolving, but it's not something that's quite apparent to the patient. And it could be something serious like a stroke or a brain tumor, multiple sclerosis. So fascinating. that's why we have specialists. Well, yeah. Can many rare diseases be diagnosed via the eyes? And which type of eye doctor should listeners look for, uh, look to see? There are a number of rare diseases that can be um, present with eye findings. And and any structure of the eye, you know, can, can have a, a rare disease impact it, whether it's the eyelids, the cornea, and the surface of the eye. Um, the iris, which is uh, and a very vascular tract in the in the eye that plainly, you know, is the colored portion that opens and closes to light and and it forms the pupil with the the hole in the center. But autoimmune diseases can cause inflammation in that that we call uveitis. Um, we can certainly get rare diseases in the retina, um, genetic diseases, and in the optic nerve, as well as some of the rare diseases can cause eyelid drooping, problems with eye movements, double vision. Um, I think the good news is is eye doctors get very comprehensive training, both ophthalmologists and optometrists during their schooling. And if they seek uh, additional education afterwards in the form of a residency or a fellowship, and they really do form kind of the first line of mm -hmm. eye care, kind of like a primary care doctor for your eyes. And because a lot of times patients don't know if they you know, they have a, they know they'll have a vision problem, but they don't know, is it a retina problem or an optic nerve problem yeah, or a cornea right. problem? Right. So they go see their local eye doctor who's maybe seen them before and knows what's normal for the patient and what's not normal for the patient. Or if they've never seen an eye doctor, they'll go to a local optometrist or a local ophthalmologist who will do a comprehensive evaluation and at least try to localize what part of the eye the problem is coming from, if if not be able to fully diagnose this, diagnose and manage it. And then if they can at least figure out, you know, what part of the eye is the problem, or is it a part of vision outside of the eye, then they can help direct them to the right kind of specialist that they need. And what should people expect? I know that my wonderful eye doctors thought I had low tension glaucoma, 
for uh, approximately 15 years. And that is glaucoma, one type of optic neuropathy. But I experienced certain symptoms that were atypical of glaucoma, but it wasn't until I was lucky enough to end up in your chair that you recognized my symptoms, while not typical of glaucoma, could indicate Wolfram optic neuropathy. And so you did all the genetic testing and uh, confirmed the diagnosis. Would that be a typical diagnostic journey? Um, you know, not exact, but something uh, long-term and something where it can take a while to manifest itself in a way that makes it more noticeable what it is. I would say that's definitely not uncommon, sorry to use the the double negative. I think one of the tenets of medicine that we learn during our training is that common things happen commonly, and even an uncommon manifestation of a common disease is much more likely than the typical manifestation of a very rare disease. And And to kind of highlight this, you know, they say when you hear hoofbeats, you should think horses and not zebras, perhaps unless you're in the Serengeti. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, glaucoma is exceptionally common. Two percent um, of people over age 40 will have glaucoma and about half of people who have it don't even know they have glaucoma. So when doctors see, you know, an optic nerve that looks enlarged and the, we'll often describe it as cupping where there's a normal dip in the optic nerve, like looking at a cup from head on. Um, and when that center portion, the dip is enlarged, that's very commonly a sign of glaucoma. And sometimes the early stages of many diseases, mild mild stages, look very similar um, with good central vision, good color vision, and mild peripheral peripheral vision damage. And it's not until patients have been followed for a long time or something changes that we say, you know, this doesn't quite fit what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. And and that's a concept that in diagnostics we re, you know refer to as as keeping an open mind and of, mm. avoiding what's called premature closure where you say oh i saw this patient 10 years ago it's glaucoma no matter what happens because i said it's glaucoma in my head i always think everything is just going to be glaucoma and mm -hmm. if you're a glaucoma specialist and all you ever see is glaucoma it's even harder to to stay out of that trap right. and so you know just Every once in a while, you step back and you say, is, is this what I'm expecting to see? Does this fit the typical picture? And if not, then we have to think about alternatives. And I, I think the doctor who had referred you to me, you know, he, he had looked at you and said, you know, this doesn't look like typical glaucoma that I see because I see glaucoma every day and I don't haven't seen anybody else like you today that looks like this or this week or this month. So maybe maybe we'll have somebody else who sees things other than glaucoma take a look. And, and a lot of times that is how things get to me. I mean, I and for diseases that are slowly progressive, it's great if we could, you know, the first doctor who sees you, you know, tell you the diagnosis, but um it's it's hard and as as long as you know nothing harmful happened to you in in that journey it's it's probably okay you know for really serious diseases that cause you know rapid progressive vision loss probably we'll figure it out a little sooner cuz glaucoma is for most people very slow it's mm -hmm. it's a very small percentage of people that lose their vision very quickly from glaucoma and usually it's pretty obvious so it, but it is a typical journey um, towards a diagnosis, not something that you can do on that fast track, except in the um, more extreme cases 
where it's really apparent that you need to Abs go. absolutely. And sometimes even when I see a patient for the first time, and I, I know it's not glaucoma, it's something different. It takes a few visits to to really figure it out because you I need more you information. I remember you told me about Wolfram and told me to, you know, get the genetic testing. And it took me one or two visits before I actually jumped on it. Um, the same thing. It's It's a process. Yeah, and sometimes it takes time to collect information, and, and sometimes the clinical picture, the symptoms the patient is having will change over time, and that offers us new clues to help us figure it out. You know, Dr. Carey, it's, it, Kathy's journey is, is unusual, and yet it's not unusual. Um, she was lucky that someone, as you said, was open-minded when they took a look at the retina and said, you know, this just doesn't look right. I thought she had glaucoma. So lucky for Kathy that this doctor really, as you said, kept an open mind and said to her, I'm going to send you to someone else. And and how great that this Wilmer doctor had that uh, foresight to open up and ask a colleague to take a look at his patient. I think that shows a great deal of confidence in, in that doctor. But what Kathy has described is a 15-year journey um, in finding out that she has a rare disease. And one thing that we have learned on our podcast is that patients seem to go through quite a long journey in, uh, from doctor to doctor, test to test, to find out really what it is they have. They know there's something wrong and they can't figure it out. Do you find this also to be true with your patients? Absolutely. I, I think we all have our own story or a friend we know who who went through, you know, doctor to doctor, lots and lots of visits trying to figure out what was wrong. Um, and and the, the rarer the disease, the harder it is to to to, you know, to find the right doctor to to make the right diagnosis. I think you know one of the other things that happens in medical training is um, when there's an emergency. Uh, you know, we we kind of try to prioritize what's what's the thing that's going to be most dangerous to my patient right away, and make sure we take care of that because we don't want anything bad to happen to our patients. And then we like to think about what's the you know the most common conditions that are going to present in this manner because we don't want to miss the common things and common things are common and and so we kind of work our way down and i think what ha what we find with patients is it's not one doctor doing all of that work and cognitive processes and it ends up being many doctors and because some of these conditions are very rare um you know some of the rare things I see are one in 10,000 events, and some of them mm. are one in 750,000 events. Um, mm. Wolfram's is, a, is one in 750,000 people. Um, mm. uh, you know, most doctors will go their whole life and never see a case that's one in a million, and they may never yeah. even read about a case, you know, you know, a diagnosis that's one in a million, if it's that kind of rare and it's outside their specialty. So um, I, I think... You know, when when you talk to patients, that it's a very common experience. You know, to try and and improve on that experience, to shorten that journey, and and improve the uh, efficacy or efficiency of you know trying to get patients diagnosed faster and to the right doctors. 
Um, it pr probably takes a lot of system changes. Um, I think we need more doctors. Uh, not, I mean, we need more doctors for primary care and common things, certainly. And that would also help to reduce some of the burden um, on the doctors when patients come in with atypical things that they can take the time to, to help and focus on so that kind of stuff. You're um, asking the question that I absolutely wanted to know. How do we shorten this diagnostic journey? And you're saying, so more doctors. Um, what else can you think of that might help us uh, shorten the agonizing wait? Yeah, so I, I, I certainly think, you know, more doctors in a, in a variety of specialties. You know, primary yeah. care is important because they do, they do those initial steps. They listen to the yeah. patients and they help to direct them where they, where they need to go. And then we also need more more specialists or more availability to you know of the specialists. It's it's not uncommon for it to be six months before I can see a new patient unless somebody mm. calls and says, "Doctor Care, I think this is really urgent. Can you make time in your schedule?" Because it's also not uncommon that I'm seeing patients until six or seven o'clock at night, oh which is goodness. not a fun experience for the patients. No. But this is what we do to try and take care of people. Um, and so Good for you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the few good things that came out of the pandemic is the improvement in, in telemedicine and something that we call, um, interprofessional e-consults where a doctor can, uh, say, Hey, I saw this patient and I did this testing and I'm not really sure what's going on. Can you take a look over all of this and tell me what you think? And that's something that's now supported by Medicare. Will they will recognize the value and the time that a doctor would put into that? Because oh, I, I can I can do that a lot faster than I can schedule a patient and have them come into the office and have the technician talk to them and do the testing and then spend the time to talk with the patient. At least I can get an idea of what's going on and say, that's urgent. That's something, you know, they don't even need to see me. They need to be in the emergency room. Or I can mm. say that's something that I could definitely help with, or I don't think that's something I could help with. Please don't schedule the patient with me and wait six months for me to tell you I can't help you with that. You know, send them to this other doctor. Um, and so I, I think that's helpful. It's still in early stages, and it's not something that's been universally implemented. Um, and probably there's doctors that don't even know that you can do that yet. Um, so this collaborative, you're, you're really speaking about working together, doctors crossing, um, maybe cross specialties. Absolutely. Calling on each other. Um, and, and I guess it would work well within you're at Johns Hopkins. So the different doctors could call each other within the network and you can communicate with each other in a very readily, easily way to do. It's certainly much easier to do it within a single health system where all yeah. of the patient information is already in a single system that we could look uh -huh. at and communicate easily. It can be done across systems um, okay. as as well. There, that's um, that's allowed. Uh, it it takes a little bit more work, but it's not that much different work than how things you know were before we had computers, where you had to send a letter and records right. on paper, and the doctor had to look at it. So you know, it's just a little bit more work than, than saying, 
hey, I got all this stuff here in the computer already. Can you look at it for me? It's amazing how the pandemic has really created some hybrid ways and technical ways of doing things that, wow, we're all thrilled that the pandemic has gone into different directions. Uh, I hope some of these technological advances just um, are, are continually used and continually improved so that, for instance, using this technique, patients can can see a specialist in a more timely manner and a more um, worthwhile manner. Absolutely. We couldn't record this podcast on Zoom before the pandemic. Right. Who had Zoom? That's right. Now it's like uh, Kleenex. It's everywhere. You know, it's yes. just a part of life. Yes. It's amazing. Well, I have a question because it seems from everything that you're doing, like you're a detective. And I'm just curious, uh, what other conditions do you commonly diagnose? It's it's funny you say that. I, I oftentimes feel like a detective. I think a lot of neuro-ophthalmologists go into neuro-ophthalmology because we get to solve puzzles and do detective work. At my residency graduation, the the classes below us get a chance to kind of roast us and they picked which superhero each one of us would be and they oh. for me they decided that I was Batman because he's a detective um, <laughs> he's like the Sherlock Holmes of, of superheroes and I was uh, so honored that they picked that for me um, a lot of the times patients are referred to me with a known diagnosis and they just need a really good vision evaluation to help with management like Maybe they have a brain tumor or maybe they know they have multiple sclerosis and they, they want somebody to, to monitor the neurologic function of vision. Um, uh, but patients who get referred without a diagnosis um, and there's in neuro-ophthalmology, we, we kind of think of two pathways. One is something that's caused vision loss and we kind of categorize patients as, as younger, which is under age 50 usually versus older. And um, and in younger patients, vision loss in one eye oftentimes is an inflammation of the optic nerve called optic neuritis. And about half the time that's related to multiple sclerosis, which is an oh. autoimmune inflammation condition of the brain. And mm -hmm. optic neuritis may be the first sign of that in about a third of patients. Mm -hmm. um, so that's pretty common. Um, in, in older people, vision loss in, in one eye is most commonly due to um, a stroke in the vision nerve um, called ischemic mm. optic neuropathy. And um, that can be very devastating to some patients because while it typically will only happen in one eye at a time, about 20% of patients, it'll happen in both eyes. Mm -hmm. and, oh, no. And and while it doesn't often leave them completely blind, the vision impairment often involves the center part of the vision and it's, oh. it's pretty life altering, which is So this is a stroke in the eye is what you're yep. talking about, Dr. Carey. Yeah. And, and, but if you have the stroke in the one eye, would they go on medication to, you know, blood pressure medication would, would that wouldn't relieve the, um, the stroke occurring in the next, in the other eye? Um, a stroke in the optic nerve is, is complicated. Really we certainly try to reduce uh, risk factors and, and help to um, work with primary care doctors and cardiologists to make sure blood pressure and cholesterol and blood sugar like diabetes is well controlled. It turns out the biggest risk factor for it happening in the second eye is untreated sleep apnea. 
where people Oh, have for goodness severe sake. snoring and will even stop breathing while they're sleeping. And most of the time they're not really aware of it, although they may wake up multiple times during the night with a choking sensation or, um, or just wake up feeling really not well rested and, and often very sleepy during the day. And if they're lucky, there's somebody else in the room that will say that they've stopped breathing, you know, notice that Oh, they my stopped breathing goodness. while they're sleeping. Um, uh, and it turns out having that untreated increases the risk by about fourfold and treating Oh. it brings it back down. Wow. Um, and so we, if, if they're not diagnosed, we try to get them checked for it and treat it as quickly as possible. Unfortunately, As we were talking about, there's a shortage of doctors. Sometimes it takes a couple of months to get the testing and treatment done. And then the really unlucky patients, the second eye happens before that. Well, what is My the goodness. difference between this and all the different types of optic neuropathies? What is optic neuropathy and what is the difference? Yeah, so optic neuropathy means the damage or dysfunction of the optic nerve, which is the nerve that carries the message of sight from the eye back to the brain. And depending on how you classify it, there's a number of different causes, um, glaucoma being the, the most common in people over age 40 or 50, which is where there's a pressure mismatch between the pressure inside the eye and the pressure um, behind the eye in the spinal fluid that causes a, a pressure gradient across the back of the eye and leads to vision, vision loss, usually peripheral vision, but it's progressive and works its way in towards the center. Um, the second most common would be ischemic optic neuropathy, which is a problem of blood flow to the vision nerve that most of the time is related to, to similar vascular risk factors like high blood pressure, diabetes, sleep apnea that we just talked about, but can also be triggered by inflammation in the vision nerve or not in the vision nerve, inflammation in the blood vessels that causes the blood vessels to close off all of a sudden and vision loss. You can also have inflammatory optic neuropathies, either triggered by some kind of infection or the immune system being overactive and attacking the vision nerve. We can also have disorders of high pressure inside the head, where that pressure is transmitted down across the nerve and kind of pinches and squeezes the nerve um, due to a buildup of too much spinal fluid. Um, we can also have what's called a compressive optic neuropathy, where something outside the vision nerve is pushing on it. And that causes damage, and that's usually a brain tumor, but could be an abnormal blood vessel like an aneurysm Wow. um, or swollen muscles behind the eye um, uh, related to some kind of inflammation in those muscles. Um, and then we have uh, nutritional or toxic optic neuropathies where there's some kind of mismatch between a possible toxin like lead or not having enough nutrients like vitamin B12 for the nerve to function normally. Um, Wow. and then we have genetic causes where a gene that's important for the function of the nerve um, is 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 not working well. And usually that's related genes related to energy production or, or maintaining the stability in the nerve. So that's what I have with Wolfram optic neuropathy. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Completely different than. Very different. And they can all present with different symptoms, different. progression they can be one eye or both eyes painful not painful involving center vision versus peripheral vision um, and the appearance of the nerve when we look in the eye can be different sometimes the nerve is swollen where it's bulging forward sometimes the nerve looks normal early in the disease course of some of these conditions 
and sometimes it will be um, pale where it loses its nice orange pink color and turns more of a whitish yellow. And then you can have cupping, which is where the enlargement and the divot of the nerve occurs um, as, as a cup portion of those um, in, in some of those conditions. And, and trying to put all those puzzle pieces together gives you a better idea of what the cause may be and, and helps guide the uh, direction of investigation. This is and just the testing incredible. is is an OCT like you would do in a glaucoma exam. Is that how you see the optic nerve? Um, we have a variety of tools that we can use to evaluate the optic nerve. The the OCT has certainly become indispensable since its invention in the early two thousands. It allows a three dimensional viewing of the optic nerve and fine detailed. Um, and so the the OCT has become really valuable for diagnosis. Um, you know determining is this a normal nerve or a not normal nerve, as well as following patients over time and seeing what kind of changes are happening to the vision nerve. The OCT is also really helpful for evaluating the retina because sometimes you, we can't tell from the exam or we're talking to the patient, is this a retina problem or an optic nerve problem? And so we can use the OCT to kind of distinguish that. And um, the other common tools we use to evaluate the function of the optic nerve is a, the peripheral vision test, often called the visual field. And that gives us a lot of information about how the optic nerve is functioning, as well as the pattern of damage to the vision nerve. Is it mostly the center part of the vision or more of a peripheral vision? Um, we will commonly check the color vision um, because color vision in a number of optic neuropathies is if, can be affected even more so than central vision. Um, particularly in those inflammatory optic neuropathies. Um, and so that really helps us to determine, um, you know, the type of optic neuropathy as opposed to in, in glaucoma, unless it's really severe glaucoma, color vision should be normal. And in most retinal conditions, the color vision is still very good. Um, but in, in like an inflammatory optic neuropathy, they can have pretty good vision on the eye chart, but have really severe color vision impairment. Um, and then the, some other testing that are done outside of the eye clinic, because we can only really look at the part of the optic nerve inside the eye in the eye clinic, which is about a millimeter's worth. Um, but it stretches all the way back towards the brain. So oftentimes we'll need to do neuroimaging. And most commonly that's done with an MRI scan um, uh, to, to really evaluate the full full length of the um, optic nerve, as well as the other vision centers in the brain. And sometimes we'll see other clues going on for what the mechanism of of injury to the optic nerve is well it makes me then think kind of the old-fashioned the narrative um a relationship you have with your doctor how important is it that you're completely open detailed and comprehensive about all your systems with your doctor even if you think it's something you know uh small and not important versus something that you're not sure that it's at all related to your visual issue. I'm just wondering if uh, the testing needs to be so big, if if the narrative with your doctor needs to be comprehensive. Absolutely. I don't know think, where to draw the lines. Yeah. I think the first time you see the neuro-ophthalmologist, they, they want to know anything that is not normal with you because the it really, uh, it really can impact it. I mean, even, I mean, I ask, that my patients, you know, some kind of embarrassing questions. Do they have painful, bloody bowel movements? Do they have frothy urine? Um, do they have pets at home? Have they been in contact with a cat? 
um, you know, did they go camping and tick bites if they had rashes in strange places? Um, uh, because the, the eyes and the neurologic system can be impacted by so many different conditions and, um, and wow. you don't know it's important until you, you've asked. Mm. Wow. Well, I want to go back to my genetic optic neuropathy and Wolfram syndrome. And I want to, I'm just curious, how did you learn about such a rare disease? How did you learn about Wolfram? Was it in school? Was it in your practice? Um, was it something you read? I'm, I'm not, I, I doubt that, but how did you learn? Yeah, I don't remember if we talked about Wolfram's in medical school. There might have been 30 seconds on it if, if there was. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. uh, certainly in, in residency, you know, we're supposed to try and learn everything there is to know about ophthalmology um, in, in the three years of ophthalmology residency or, or at least have heard about it and, 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 and know where to go look it up if you need a refresher. Um, uh, I, there was not a lot of time spent spent on it in in residency. During my neuroophthalmology fellowship, um, you know, you, you really dive deep into neuroophthalmology and and recognize that in in one year it's impossible to see everything there is in neuroophthalmology and impossible to learn everything. So you read and read and read, and um, and then I actually did a second fellowship in Iowa. Um, uh, in in medical retina, and we spent um, about twenty percent of the time there doing genetic uh, conditions, and um, those um, and m most of that was for retinal disease. But there's some overlap, and um, and so we learn about it there. Uh, some overlap there as well. And then when you go to medical conferences, you know we talk with colleagues, and we'll listen to lectures on on rare conditions or new developments. I don't remember if it was before or after we met, but I actually wrote a book chapter on on genetic optic neuropathies. And while Wolfram's is certainly rare, it's it's one of our three archetypes of genetic optic neuropathies. Oh wow! Um, because there's most people don't know this, but uh, in your genes, everybody knows that you have. Tw well, not everybody knows. I get in kindergarten, right? They tell everybody you get twenty-three pairs of chromosomes, one from mom and one from dad. There's actually a third set of genes that everybody has, and these ones only come from mom. And doesn't matter if you're a boy or girl; they only come from mom, and they're called the mitochondrial genome. And the mitochondria in the cells are what's responsible for generating energy, and and you can actually track uh, lineages via the mitochondrial DNA mm. uh, going way back. And, and every time somebody shows up saying they're, they're one of the lost Romanovs, uh, they can go <laughs> and check their, their, their mitochondrial DNA mm. and they say, nope, you're, you're not a, a maternal descendant of the Romanovs. I'm sorry. Okay. You, you don't get to be the Empress of Russia. Um, <laughs> and, and, the most common genetic, one of the most common genetic optic neuropathies called Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy right. is, is, is a mitochondrial uh, condition. And so that's one of the archetypes. And then the, up there for the top two is, is, is what's called dominant optic atrophy. And in the genes you get that are split between mom and dad, because everybody has two copies, there are some conditions that are called dominant, where if you have one abnormal copy of the gene, then you have the condition. And that's why it's called dominant, because that gene kind of dominates Rules the condition. Over. Yeah. 
and that's what dominant optic atrophy is is in the the OPA1 gene and and if you have one copy of OPA1 you have it and so there's a strong family history in dominant because that you had to get that from one of your parents and then that means they also had to have the condition and they got it from one of their parents and half of any of the kids in a generation are going to have that condition so mm. big family wow. history it's really easy to find dominant genes when you're looking for them Wolfram's is the most common, even though it's super rare, of what's called autosomal recessive, which means it takes two abnormal copies, one from mom and one from dad. Now, mom and dad are usually normal because they have one normal copy and one abnormal copy, and each of the kids has a 25% chance of getting both the abnormal copies, so much rarer in the family, and you don't always have a family history, but... There are other genes that can cause autosomal recessive disease, but Wolfram's is the one we know the most about because it has all these other features with it, and so it's easier to identify. When it's mm -hmm. only causing an optic nerve problem and you're the only person in the family with it, it's so much harder to even recognize that it's a genetic problem because nobody right. else has it and you don't have any other manifestations. Wow. Um, have you diagnosed many rare diseases in your practice? I guess it depends on what you're using as a cutoff for rare. Um, you know, is is one in ten thousand rare? Is one in fifty thousand rare? Is one in a hundred thousand rare? Um, uh, you know, things like uh, the retina side has has for genetic diseases is much more common. Mm -hmm. um, uh, an inherited retinopathy called retinitis pigmentosa happens in about one in 4,000 people. Mm. And, um, and Stargard's um, uh, macular dystrophy is about one in 10,000 people, but that's a one gene condition as opposed to the retinitis pigmentosa is about, there might be 100 to 200 genes that can cause it, but they, they all look very similar. So they get grouped together for one in 4,000. A single gene is 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 much rarer for that, and that's probably one in a hundred thousand um, for any single gene to cause retinitis pigmentosa. So I I think being at at Johns Hopkins and the Wilmer Eye Institute, um, you know, we see a lot of rare things, um, uh, and and it's a, you know, it's one of the things that keeps the job interesting and getting to help patients yeah. and help them on their journey is very rewarding. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things I love about being at Johns Hopkins, as well as getting to work with wonderful colleagues who can say, hey, I'm not sure this is what we think it is. Can you take a look? And, and, and you know, just the collaborative effort is, is really a wonderful spirit to be, be a part of. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for all you do. Um, I, I, it makes me wonder, though, are most rare things genetic? A lot of medicine you know, we have learned over time and been able to identify conditions. And the human genome is just one of those mysteries that only recently we're really starting to unravel. Okay. Um, you know, the, the Human Genome Project, uh, you know, was finished in the early 2000s, I believe. And that was the first time we were able to sequence the entire human genome. And that was from one person. And since then, and that, that took, you know, a decade or more time. Now we can you know, sequence an entire person's genome in a few weeks if you, if you have an extra thousand dollars laying around. Um, uh, but there's a lot, so much what we call normal variation out there. You know, my genome's a little bit different than your genome. 
Kathy, and your genome's a little bit different than Beth's genome, unless you guys are identical twins that I'm not able to recognize. Um, and that's what makes us each a little bit different, even though our genomes are very close. We're like, you know, 99% the same. But those little changes in the genome are what makes us individuals and trying to recognize, is this little difference a problem or is that just normal for you? And so there's there's still a lot that we're learning. And there are patients who I'm convinced have a genetic optic neuropathy. And we've looked through the entire genome and we haven't been able to find able it to yet. Find one. So there's yeah. a lot we're still learning about. There are certainly rare conditions that are not genetic. You know, you can have super rare infections. You know, the, the news loves to talk about the teenagers who jumped in a lake in Florida and yes. got an amoeba right. in their brain. I mean, yes. that's super yes. right. That's like one or two people a year in the world. So, uh -huh. you know, that's, you know, we're talking like one in seven billion. Um, there are super rare autoimmune conditions, although maybe those have a genetic predisposition and they're one of the genes that's supposed to help with your immune system is a little bit off and then you're prone to autoimmune diseases. Um, so uh, I think, you know, genetics is is certainly a very common cause of uh, super rare conditions, not the only cause. Um, and it, it may be more of a cause than we recognize. It, it may be that some patients who develop some kind of toxic injury that one of their genes made them more susceptible and they were not able to recover from it. Um, mm. People who drink a lot, you know, who, who have alcohol addiction, some people develop vision loss from that. Some people don't. Wow. And maybe it's the genes that separate those two types of people. Most of your patients, adults? The vast majority are adults. We have some uh, very phenomenal pediatric ophthalmologists at the Wilmer Institute. I was going to ask you if you see children. Do you and see I, children or do you refer them to a pediatric specialist? Um, I, I will see them if somebody with pediatric expertise saw them and said, I really think you need to see a neuro-ophthalmologist or uh -huh. they have a clear neuro-ophthalmologic problem. You know, if they had like a brain tumor um, and they, they need to see me for that. Or we know they had some type of inflammation in their brain, like they had pediatric multiple sclerosis or something else, and, mm. and they need um, my type of expertise, then I will. M most pediatric eye conditions, even if we're not 100% sure what they are yet, are the pediatric ophthalmologists are so much better at, at evaluating uh -huh. kids because they they as we've talked about, you know, that, that history and being able to really communicate with the patient is so important. And, and that's really hard with kids. And they're also not great at sitting still for an eye exam. And so the, the pediatric ophthalmologist, because they, they practice that and do that day in and day out about, you know, figuring out what's the most important part of the exam I need to do right now. And let's do that while we can do it. And then everything else, you know, we'll fill in as we can. And sometimes you even have to take the children to the operating room and give them a little anesthesia just to do a, an adequate eye exam. And, and wow. so it, if it, if it's a pediatric thing, I usually have the pediatric folks see it unless they say, Hey, Dr. Carey, can you help with this case? And then of course the answer is yes. And it's good to know. It's Absolutely. Know. I, you know, I guess we have, um, we are especially interested in Wolfram because my co-host has it. And so I uh, wondered about your research and what you hope to accomplish. What a wonderful question. You know, Wolfram's is a little bit different than some of our other eye conditions because it has so many manifestations outside of the eye. Um, and so uh, when we 
that really takes a multidisciplinary approach working with neurologists and endocrinologists uh, for caring for the patients, but also when we're trying to come up with, you know, new types of treatments and, and looking at experimental studies. One of the challenges with a rare condition like Wolfram's is we know what typical Wolfram's looks like. And, but as we were talking about before, how my DNA is a little bit different than Kathy's DNA and a little bit different than Beth's DNA, we're not really sure if we know what everybody's Wolfram's looks like. And so one of the important things is to try and evaluate as many people that we can who have Wolfram's to understand what's that variation and to so that A, we're better at figuring out if somebody has Wolfram sooner so we can get them treatment sooner for the things we already have treatment for. And B, also trying to figure out what's what are different people's visual impairments and visual needs so that we can tailor that for the patient and also try to give them an idea of what their visual future may look like. A lot of Wolfram's patients have really severe vision impairment in childhood. And so they need very early vision and education-based interventions so that they can get the education they need because the education of a blind child is very different than everybody else. And we know that education is so important for long-term health, um, socioeconomic status, happiness, um, you know, how much income you can earn. All of that is so tied together. And, and we don't want to disadvantage any child. Um, and if, if, if we miss that early and they've fallen behind in school, it's, it's really hard to catch up mm -hmm. because the, the children's brain is such a sponge. So much learning happens even before they get to school. I mean, think about it, right? You you had to learn yeah. to walk. You had to learn to to talk. Um, yeah. You probably even start learning to read a little bit before you're even in school. And so mm -hmm. um, trying to really, really help with that. Um, but uh, some people, the vision impairment happens later, uh, teen years, 20s. Uh, maybe it's much, much later. And just trying to get an understanding of what that kind of variety is out there for Wolfram's is is really important. Well, so some of the research that I'm particularly interested in Wolfram's is trying to collect as many patients as we can who might have been seen in Hopkins or be within the Hopkins geographic network that we could recruit to do a comprehensive evaluations of their vision, their optic nerve, their retina to see what kind of variety exists there and to kind of compare, well, this person may be five and this person might be 20 and this person might be... 50 and see if there's changes that we could predict. And then as time goes on, follow those patients to better understand how that would change. And then the other thing that, that we are finding with multi-system genetic conditions is that a lot of times when a new treatment comes out, either a medication to try and modify the genes function or a new genetic treatment is that the eye, because we have all these wonderful tools that we talked about, like the OCT and the visual field and color vision, and we can look inside, is a wonderful way to monitor that. And we're finding that with things like Alzheimer's dementia and Parkinson's and other genetic conditions that there are changes in the eye that we can monitor and for diseases getting worse. And as new treatments come out, we're hoping that those, those same techniques will allow us to see if there's treatment of responses to treatment and improvement. You know, we have spoken to um, some parents of children with Wolfram's um, and their their children uh, are losing their sight. It is such a difficult uh, disease and a, and a difficult conversation. Um, 
And I we raised awareness and you're doing such good work. For our listeners, I wonder if there if you could tell us how they could get involved and support your research. That is a wonderful question. Um, we do have um, some very wonderful, dedicated staff members at Johns Hopkins and the Wilmer Eye Institute that um, help with development and people who are interested in in gift giving. Um, and every little bit helps, whether it's you know a couple dollars to you know help fund medical student research into the field and get new you know those those young clinicians interested in the field, which is so important for the future. Um, mm -hmm. or if it's, you know, something that they want to help fund part of a research project or help fund uh, a research fellowship, um, all of those things are, are so important. And then, um, you know, one of the most important things is also um, helping us to uh, find and see those patients. Um, you know, if, if you have Wolfram's or you know somebody who has Wolfram's, um, not only would we be interested in trying to help them as a patient, but also we learn a lot from our patients um, and, and, and having that opportunity to, to learn from, from those patients would be really helpful. Very good. Wonderful. Wow. How, how does the future look for rare disease and optic, genetic optic neuropathies in particular, since we were talking Wolfram? Yeah, I, I think the the good news is, as we talked a little bit about, you know, the the human genome project and genetics is is kind of a a newer field. You know, we've we've known about genes for a while that you know they were hypothesized, and then when we developed the X-ray technology, you know, Watson and Crick were able to identify the double helix and DNA, and that then we were able to show that's where the genes are, and that's how how we you know pass down traits and and encode proteins. Um, there is a lot of research into genetics. Um, and we have some wonderful researchers at Johns Hopkins who are working on trying to grow new ganglion cells, which are the cells that send their cables that become the optic nerves and working on stem cells. Um, one of the challenges with optic nerves is because it does, it doesn't just stay in the retina, it has to go and travel to the brain. Mm -hmm. There are doctors at other institutions who are working on uh, ways to stimulate and guide those optic nerves from the retina. Um, to 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 grow back towards the brain, um, mm -hmm. and some of that is using electromagnetic pulses um, to try and help help grow that. And other doctors are working on uh, growth factors to help uh, maintain the health of the ganglion cells after they get transplanted. And and we're doing some of that work at Johns Hopkins and in, in mice currently. Um, and so there's that's kind of like the genetic stem cells. There are other doctors who are working on um, various more traditional kind of pharmacology medications that may help to supplement the health and function of optic nerves to preserve what's what's currently functioning and to help stabilize vision, prevent further visual decline. Um, so it's it's there's a lot of different efforts that are being made at a lot of wonderful institutions with really smart people with Johns Hopkins and the Wilmer Eye Institute, certainly among them. Um, it's not something that is going to be an easy fix. Um, and so it is, it does take all of those folks working at it. Um, yeah. but we're making more progress than we've ever had before. And I think the fact that they were able to demonstrate that in certain animals, we can, we can implant new ganglion cells and grow optic nerves is mm. is is just mind-blowing at this point would in time. be yeah. wonderful that would Incredible. be wonderful that Incredible. would be wonderful 
for all the glaucoma patients out there, this would be as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in closing, Dr. Carey, is there any advice you'd like to give our audience today? I think the, you know, the advice that I would give, you know, to patients out there is, is first, if you notice a, a change in your vision and your vision seems off, um, you know, don't, don't blow it off. Go, go see your eye doctor. Um, and if your eye doctor says, hmm, you know, I'm not really sure what this is. Um, sometimes you have to advocate for yourself and, and probably the best question after that would be to say, is there somebody maybe you could recommend that I should see that might be able to do other testing or, or have other thoughts. And um, I, I think, you know, most doctors would, would take that question and say, you know, I, I do know somebody and, and be able to help. There are, we didn't specifically focus on this today. There are some things in the vision that could be an emergency, like sudden mm-hmm. onset of vision loss in one or both eyes or sudden onset of double vision. And those could be signs of strokes. And, and that might be something you'd want to go to the emergency room for, because that could be a sign of a serious brain issue presenting as a vision, as a vision problem. It's not the kind of thing where you say, let's go to sleep and see what it's like in the morning. Um, Uh I guess those are the, the two biggest, uh, two biggest pieces of of advice that I would have for any listeners. Um, It's amazing how much of our health is connected to our eyesight. I mean, just from listening to you today, it's yeah. just remarkably uh, important to to make those connections and for patients to understand that one thing may be linked to something else that you never imagined. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been an incredibly insightful and educational session and thank you for being a guest here today it happened to me is just so thrilled to have you on and you've really helped to educate and enlighten our audience as i was saying um but about neuro ophthalmology uh and optic neuropathies rare diseases genetics thank you thank you thank you it's just been a wonderful session thank you Well, it's been such a pleasure to be on here. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to talk about some of these uh, topics I'm quite passionate about. So it's always, always fun to share. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact form on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app like Apple or Spotify. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenge community find us. It Happened to Me is created and hosted by Kathy Gillenhorn and Beth Glassman. I'm Kira Deneen from DNA Today, and I serve as our executive producer and marketing lead. Amanda Andrioli is our associate producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone, and neither are you.